Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's time for us to begin, and we do need to begin on time here. I have a lot of ground to cover in this introductory lesson to our study on uh, through the book, The Israel of God, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow by O. Palmer Robinson, Robertson. Robertson. Um, really excellent book that I read, I don't know, probably 10 years ago. I thought it was excellent then, and um, have long been thinking it would be a good study for us to go through, and it seems that now, now would be the time to do it. Let's bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, do help us in this Sunday school hour to focus our minds. Give us understanding of your most holy word. I pray that you would help us as we engage with this somewhat difficult and controversial topic, O oh Lord, to do so with winsomeness and with grace. Lord, I pray that we would not merely fill our minds with facts, but that our hearts would be won over all the more by Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was crucified and raised from the dead for us. Uh, we thank you for the hope of life eternal in the new heavens and earth that we have through faith in Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a schedule on the back table. There's a schedule online under the Learn tab, Emmaus Essentials. Mike created a page for us there. Uh, it's a tentative schedule for this course. I've already altered it uh, since it, it, the, the, the one you have printed, I think, is correct. But I had to alter it because there was just so much to cover. I, I said, well, I've got to back this off a little bit. So there's a good chance that we'll go a little longer uh, in terms of numbers of weeks uh, in this study. Because I don't want to rush through this. I think this is such an important subject. Why this study now? Obviously, there's something about current events and politics that, are, that is a prompting the desire to go through this study, given the war in Palestine, answering the question, who is the Israel of God correctly, is of great importance. I hope that you can feel the importance of that. Uh, perhaps you're reading the news or listening to the news, and sometimes you'll hear arguments being made even now uh, that we and every other nation is bound and obligated to back Israel no matter what, because the Bible says so. Have you heard this argument recently? I'm hearing it, and, and um, I was raised in a church where that argument was made. But it's not, even, it's not only coming from evangelicals who are dispensational and premillennial in their theology. It's also coming from our politicians. It's certainly coming from politicians in Israel. And so really we're going to be asking the question, is this true? Is this true? Uh, more broadly, who is the Israel of God? Answering this question correctly is of great importance, and I think you could just sense the importance um, of this question. Uh, whatever your view is of the modern state of Israel, I would propose to you that the argument that I just mentioned a moment ago is certainly not true. It is the byproduct of that faulty belief system known as dispensational premillennialism. You hear me speak against that often. I think it's important that we speak against it. There's a lot of errors that uh, um, come about uh, and, and arise out of that faulty belief system. As Christians who believe the whole Bible, we should not subscribe to the view that the modern state of Israel is to be backed no matter what because the Bible says so. It doesn't say that. Instead, we should be concerned to see justice upheld in all nations, both in peacetime and in war. That should be our concern. Uh, so, uh, this study is not going to be about politics or current events necessarily. Um, I'm going to actually try my best to hold my personal opinions to myself for the most part. Um, I'm not an expert on the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict that's been going on for, and building for 75 years. I, I have my strong opinions about it. This is going to be a, a theological study. We're going to be talking about the Bible. What does the Bible say? Uh, maybe there'll be some opinions expressed throughout this study. Uh, but 
So this is not about politics or current events necessarily, but I, I do want to say something about politics briefly because I, I care about these things as a pastor. I would like to at least encourage the members of Emmaus uh, to read or watch the news very cautiously and discerningly. I think it's an important thing for me to say pastorally. It's important for you to read and watch the news very cautiously and discerningly, remembering a few things. One, do not forget that fear sells. Fear sells. And I don't want you to get caught up in that. I think there is this, it's always been there, but I think there is this growing tendency to, to want to keep people in this perpetual state of fear. And I don't want you to buy into that. Uh, two, I do want you to remember that all of our news and social media is highly controlled and censored. I think people really began to see that clearly during the, the COVID era with all of the government lockdowns and the censorship that was taking place. Even common sense ideas were being banned from social media and censored. You know, people are getting their accounts closed down. So just, I want you to keep that in mind. Our, the, the, the news media in this country and in this world is highly controlled. Social media is highly censored. So don't forget that. I think these are just obvious things that I can state without controversy. Thirdly, I, I do want you to remember that propaganda is real. Propaganda is real. And all governments do engage in propaganda, uh, trying to control information and the narrative that is believed by the population. All governments do this. I would, I would want to suggest to you or... Um, that, that our government is very skilled at this. Don't think that it's only something that other governments do. I think our government is very skilled in this. And so I would just ask you as your pastor to keep all of those things in mind as you engage with the news and as you engage with things that are being said on social media. Engage with all of this cautiously and discerningly, asking important questions. Is this true? Is there another side that's not being brought, brought out here? Do I have to dig more in order to actually have a, an accurate view on what's being presented to me. Uh, these things, as I've just said, are very important to me as a pastor to present to you because I think these things do really impact our mentality, our mindset, our souls even, as we sojourn in this world. This study is not going to be about current events and politics necessarily. This is a pursuit of orthodoxy, that is to say, right belief. In the study, we will apply our covenant theology and, our herm and the hermeneutical method consistently employed here at Emmaus to the question, who is the Israel of God, past, present, and future? I'm flying through this right now, but I've taught a lot about covenant theology, haven't I? And I've taught also about hermeneutics, how it is that we're to interpret the Bible. I'm hoping that you're catching this modeled as I preach every Lord's Day. Basically, we're going to take covenant theology and the hermeneutical method that's consistently employed here at Emmaus and apply it to this very specific question, who is the Israel of God, past, present, and future? Concerning the land... The answer will be that Christ has redeemed heaven and earth. The land of Old Covenant Israel was a picture of the new heavens and earth. Both the Old and New Testaments teach this. And so, uh, we will go through this very slowly in future les lessons, but I just want to give you a sense of where we're heading. Um, Christ came not to redeem a sliver of land in Palestine. Christ came to redeem the heavens and, and the earth. So, what we hold to is a, a form of what I like to call expansion theology. It's this idea that what God was doing under the Old Covenant with the, the land of Israel and the nation of Israel has greatly expanded on the New, new Covenant uh, so that the Kingdom of God is spreading to all nations. Uh, so that will be the argument that is, that is made here. And concerning the people, the answer will be that Christ has redeemed His elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
The people of Old Covenant Israel were set apart from other nations for a time so that the Messiah would come into the world through them and bless the nations. The true Israel of God is not ethnic. The true Israel of God is not ethnic. All who have faith, the faith of Abraham, a faith in the promised Messiah, from amongst the ethnic Jews and the ethnic Gentiles are Abraham's true children. This is just so clearly taught in the New Testament. It is on the surface the plain teaching of the New Testament. Who are the true children of Abraham would be another way of asking the question, who is the true Israel of God? It's a, it's a, this, a different way of asking the same question. And the New Testament is very clear. The true children of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. They are not necessarily his descendants, uh, genealogically speaking, but they are those who share his faith. And his faith was in the promised Messiah, and the Messiah has come. Uh, so then, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, the New Testament says. The Gentiles have been grafted in uh, to, uh, to the people of God. All are one in Christ. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. I'm just throwing out some phrases to you really quickly. Hopefully they're you know, ringing a bell in, in your mind. Oh yeah, that's how the New Testament talks. There's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile under the New Covenant because this is not about ethnicity in any way, shape, or form. This is about faith in the promised Messiah. The middle wall of hostility has been broken down and these are the last days. Those of you who were raised with in dispensationalism have a hard time with that statement. You know, you, I think I made a little passing comment a couple of weeks ago that dispensationalism washes off slowly sometimes. And, you know, these are the last days. You're going, oh, what, what do I mean? When did they begin, brothers and sisters? 2,000 years ago. At Christ's first coming. These are the last days, not meaning that the return of Christ is going to happen very, very soon. But what does it mean except that there is no other era before us? There is no other dispensation yet to come except the return of Christ and the consummate state. These are the last days, meaning that the next thing that will happen is Christ will return to judge and to make all things new. And so the church of, of Christ, the Israel of God, has been living with a sense of expectation ever since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. They have been awaiting His coming and the consummation of all things. Uh, the first century church lived with this sense of anticipation. The second century church, and so on and so forth, on to this present day. And yet so many who hold to this dispensational and premillennial view, pre-tribulational, premillennial view especially, they're constantly trying to discern the times. Are these really the last days? Well, the Scriptures actually do warn us against doing that very thing. Uh, and so... You can see how our covenant theology, our hermeneutical method, even things that have been taught in the past concerning eschatology are going to come into play here in this study as we ask the question, who is the Israel of God? For some in this room, this is obvious. For some in this room, this is obvious. And I'm going to ask you to not tune out. We're going to take our time going through this book because there is still much to learn and there is much to reflect upon. If, if this truth is obvious to you, don't tune out, but rather just reflect more deeply upon these truths. As I read through this book yet again and prepared to teach upon it, I was just overwhelmed with a sense of awe of the redemption that Christ has earned. And with the reward that is ours through faith in Him, the new heavens and new earth. I was even just you know, reflecting upon the principle of land, which we'll get to in just a moment, thinking, this is such an amazing concept. This is such a beautiful topic. Don't we all long to have a land that is our own? Isn't it just... 
a part of what it means to be human. We want to have a place to live, a place to dwell. Uh, and, and yet, what has Christ done except secured for us an eternal place, one that will be eternally secure? I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm just saying, if these truths are old truths to you, don't tune out, reflect more deeply, let it build. For others in this room, this sounds radical. And I, I get that. Uh, this would have sounded radical to me 15 years ago. Uh, but also I would say to you, please do not tune out. Please listen to the arguments. And I, I strongly believe that if you believe the Scriptures to be the Word of God, and if you're willing to listen, I think you'll be persuaded by the arg- arguments that are presented in this study as things build. We are pursuing orthodoxy, right belief. We are pursuing orthopraxy, that is, correct practice or holy living. And I think what you'll see as we go through this study is that this is going to have a profound impact upon the way we live. The way we live. If it is true that we are the Israel of God, uh, united to Christ by faith, then we are God's holy people. Uh, And right there, you can begin to see the practical side of this. We are being called to live as a holy people in this world. Uh, So please be uh, consistent in the study. Don't tune out if it's new or old information to you. Let's reflect deeply upon all these things. Now, I'm moving very quickly this morning. You can feel it. I hopefully won't have to move so quickly in future classes. Uh, Let's begin to go over the reading, pages 1 through 14. Some people like to read ahead of time. Some people like to read after, I found. For some, the reading goes better if they've heard the overview first. Uh, For others, they like to come to class prepared, whatever you prefer is just fine. The land as a theological concept is the first thing that um, Robertson uh, addresses here. And I do want to say that this is such a beautiful concept. I've already mentioned this and so I won't restate it. I did, in fact, get ahead of myself. The land as a theological concept. He wants us to think about the land, the land of Israel, but he wants us to think about the land theologically to see that it's, it's connected to major themes within Holy Scripture. And he insists that we need to begin with paradise. Now, this should sound very familiar to you because I preached a sermon, knowing that we were coming to this study a couple of Sundays ago, where I did this very thing. I began to talk about the kingdom of God. And one of the things that a kingdom has is a place or a land. And where did I take you, brothers and sisters, except all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that is what... Uh, That is what is done here by Robertson in this book. He wants us to begin thinking about land, the land, be it the land of Israel or any other, as a theological concept. We must go back to paradise. He says, The land did not begin to be theologically significant with the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Your Bible does not begin in Genesis 12. Your Bible starts in Genesis 1, and those introductory chapters are very, very important for a correct understanding of the whole of Scripture. I continue to quote now, Instead, the patriarch's hope of possessing a land arose out of a concept of restoration to the original state from which man had fallen. That's huge. That is so huge. When God called Abram to leave his home country and to go to another, and he promised to give him a, a slice of land, he, he, he understood And the scriptures say that he understood that this was about more than just that slice or sliver of land. It was about undoing what had been done by man's fall into sin and and restoring and bringing to a consummation the things that were uh, given and, and, and offered to Adam and Eve. Abraham knew this, and we will see that in just a moment. And so we must see that the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 12. The concept of land doesn't start there. It starts in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden in which God had placed man after He created the man and the woman. 
And speaking of Israel's land under the Old Covenant, it is necessary to think in categories of shadow type and prophecy in contrast to reality, substance, and fulfillment under the New Covenant. This too should sound very familiar to you. When we look at the Old Covenant, uh, the Old Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenants, we must think in terms of shadow type and prophecy in in contrast to reality, substance, and fulfillment under the New Covenant. You've heard a lot of this from me as well. Okay, Uh, If a shadow is going to be cast, it's going to be cast by something that's substantial. I'm casting a shadow right now that the substance of me, my body, is casting the shadow. Uh, This is more real than that, you would agree. Both are real, but this is more real than that. That owes its existence to this. Uh, That reflects something of the reality of this. Uh, I just was thinking to myself, that's going to come across really strange on the recording. Uh, (laughs) That and this, that and this. You, You saw my movements there. But it's important to think of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New in those terms. Uh, The the, the difference, I say again, uh, between shadow type and prophecy, things that look forward, things that typify things yet to come, things that are a reflection of, of other realities, in contrast to reality, substance, and fulfillment, under the New Covenant. Throughout the Gospels, for example, Jesus is presenting as having come to fulfill Old Covenant anticipations. He came to fulfill things that were said of Him previously, or that He was anticipated under the Old Covenant. He came to fulfill these things. In the Gospels, this is the way Christ is presented to us. Paul speaks of, for example, the religious festivals of the Old Covenant as, and I quote Paul, a shadow of the things that were to come. You see, we didn't make up that word. That's a biblical word. These Old covenant festivals were a shadow of things to come. The substance, Paul tells us, is Christ, and those were shadows cast backward on redemptive history of of, of Christ. The events of Israel's redemptive history are, are referred to as types for believers during the New Covenant age. They were types, and there are antitypes yet to come. And you may see 1 Corinthians 10.6 for more about this. All these authors of the, uh, of the New Covenant documents develop a significant aspect of their theology by contrasting Old Covenant shadows with New Covenant realities. Right now you're probably thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with Israel? And the question is before us. As I said, let it build. These are foundational principles that we have to have settled before we can go on and answer questions like, who is the Israel of God today? Um, Yes, when you read the New Testament documents, you see that they view the Old Covenant as containing prophecies, shadows, and types that anticipate greater realities yet to come, more substantial realities, namely Christ and the establishment of His eternal kingdom. It is particularly in the epistle to the Hebrews that this contrast between anticipation and realization, between shadow and reality, finds its fullest and most distinctive expression. The book of Hebrews is incredible. I'll preach through it someday, Lord willing. So just listen, for example, to Hebrews 10.1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Do you hear the concept? Now, of course, Paul is talking about the sacrificial system here, specifically, but he refers to that sacrificial system as being something shadowy. (laughs) It's a a shadow cast backward, but it points forward to the greater reality, namely Christ Jesus, 
who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so those sacrifices that were offered up at the temple were meant to kind of picture in a prophetic way the coming Christ and what He would do to take away our sins. Uh, This is just one little example from the book of Hebrews of how uh, Christ and His apostles interpreted the Old Testament. They saw the relationship between the Old Testament and New in these terms. The Old Testament anticipated Christ. It looked forward to Christ. There were prophecies uttered about Him, but there were also shadows and types present there uh, that, that pictured Christ and the work He would do ahead of time. Think also of the way these things anticipated Christ under the Old Covenant. Think of the sacrificial animals. Think of the temporary priesthood. Think of the mobile tabernacle. Think of the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, and the serpent on the pole. Now, you have to be pretty familiar with your Bible to to catch all of this. But these little little phrases here are meant to remind you of what the New Testament says. Um, God gave the people of Israel um, water to drink from the rock, referring to that rock which Moses uh, spoke to and, and water issued forth out of it, correct? And the people, their thirst was satiated. But Paul picks up that and says, the rock was Christ. The what rock was Christ? Or the theme of manna from heaven. Christ claims to be the true manna, the true bread from heaven. Uh, even the concept of tabernacle. The beginning of the, the Gospel of John In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled amongst us. Christ claims to be the temple. In other words, the temple, as wonderful as it was, uh, was meant to point forward to Him and to the work that He would do to reconcile, uh, reconcile His people to God the Father. Again, moving very quickly, but these things have been said before. I hope you're able to keep up with all of this it will become clear with the passing of time. This principle has great significance when it is applied to the idea of the land of Israel under the administration of the Old Covenant. So these principles that have just been set before you, the relationship between the Old and the New, and the idea of foreshadowing and and, and fulfillment, this principle here has great significance when it is applied to the idea of the land of Israel under the administration of the Old Covenant. What was the purpose of that land? What was it all about? Is that land the end goal? You, you understand the question? Is it, is it all about that land forever? It, was that the purpose of it? That God would have for Himself a little tiny place on earth that belongs to Him, that He dwells in, that His people enjoy? Certainly not. First of all, the land pointed back. The land of Israel under the Old Covenant echoed Eden. Can you see it? I hope you're able to see it. Eden was lost by man's fall into sin. God promised to bring redemption, even to Adam and Eve. And then all of a sudden, a little sliver of land is given to to, to Abraham and to his descendants. And it's as if it's the first little piece of territory that the Lord has redeemed. It's a little picture of Eden. Um, It's a land flowing with milk and honey even though it wasn't. <laughs> it, 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 it was by God's blessing, but God made it that way. We'll get to that point in just a moment. God's presence and God's blessing made the land fruitful for the people in that place. It pointed back to Eden. 
Also, it pointed up, and by that I mean the land was a picture of heavenly realities. See, for example, Hebrews 11.16. But as it is, they, the patriarchs, desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Uh, This is one verse out of a very important text in, in Hebrews 11. But the whole point of the text here is that Abraham, when, when this land was promised to him, he understood that it was about more than just the land itself. It was a picture of heavenly realities, of, of, of greater realities than these. Do you remember how, for example, when Israel was told to build the tabernacle, that um, a pattern was shown to him on the mountain of the temple in, of God in heaven, so that the, the tabernacle or temple was patterned after heavenly realities. Do you remember that theme uh, that we looked at in the book of Exodus? Well, there's kind of a sense in which the whole of the land of Israel was also a, a, a picture of heavenly realities. God dwelling in the midst of His people and filling uh, that place with His glory. Also, and I think most important to our study, the land of Israel pointed forward The land also served as a shadow, a type, a prophecy, anticipating the future working of God with His people, uh, says Robertson on page 6. This relation of prophetic shadow to substantial fulfillment becomes increasingly evident as the theme of the land is traced through Scripture. This is what we mean when we say we need to consider the theme of land theologically. We we, We need to think about land, and we need to trace the theme throughout the Bible, beginning where? In Eden, and then coming to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then uh, to the exodus from Egypt, the wilderness sojournings, the entering of the land through the leadership of Joshua, the conquest, etc., etc. We need to trace uh, the theme of land uh, throughout the Scriptures to understand the significance of these things. And here Robertson is saying that this relation of prophetic shadow to substantial fulfillment becomes increasingly evident as the theme of the land is traced throughout Scripture, first in the history of Israel, then in the Psalms and prophets, and finally in the documents of the New Covenant itself. So we need to see how this theme um, runs throughout the whole of Scripture and how it builds. We need to pay attention to how it builds, how it develops, you see. It was meant to develop from the beginning. Uh, These things, the land of Israel, the temple, the priesthood, everything we've just mentioned, they were meant from the beginning to function as shadows and as types. They were meant to develop and build and find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. The idea of the land in the Scripture centers particularly on two basic concepts, one broad and one narrow, the totality of the area known as the land of the Bible and the city of Jerusalem with its center on Mount Zion, uh, says Robertson. So we might think of the land as a whole. I should go this way because it's shaped like that. And then we should think of the city of Jerusalem in particular. And we will do that in due time. There are three topics to consider. And in the remainder of this um, lesson today, we're only going to get to the first one and not even the totality of the first one. First, we need to consider the land and the experience of God under the old, uh, God's people under the Old Covenant. Second, we need to consider the land in the Psalms and in the Prophets. And third, we need to consider the land from a new covenant perspective. So that's what we'll do in the remainder of this chapter, but we won't get through all of it today. The land began with paradise and was lost in the fall. Uh, This has already been said. Let me quote Robertson 
the idea of paradise was renewed in the promise of the land made by God in His covenant to redeem a people from His fallen condition. Uh, side note, we Reformed Baptists would not call this promise, the promise of Genesis 3.15, a covenant. Okay, Robertson is not a Reformed Baptist. He's a Pado-Baptist. And so that stood out to me. We would call it a promise because that's what it was. Robertson is a Pado-Baptist and his covenant theology reflects that. He calls Genesis 3.15 a covenant. We would call it a promise. If that doesn't matter to you, then let it go. So be. Uh, this idea of restoration to paradise proves, uh, provides the biblical con- context for understanding God's promise to give land to Abraham. So if you want to understand what God was doing with Abraham and the promise he made to him, you have to understand the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. This promise to the patriarch became the basis for all subsequent understanding of the role of the land in the unfolding history of redemption. You know, someone asked me the other day, why do Christians have such different ideas about this? How can we all be thinking different things and have such strongly held you know, positions that differ from one another? And I, and I in brief, said, it's about hermeneutics. It's about our interpretation of Scripture. We share this belief in common. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. But we're obviously interpreting the Bible differently. And I think one of the most fundamental hermeneutical errors that's made is that people fail to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and to the garden. And they do kind of start in the wrong place. You know, They start in Genesis 12. Uh, they wouldn't admit that, but I think that's what they do. And that's why Robertson is making this point over and over again. The promise to the patriarch... Uh, was building upon earlier themes, and it becomes the basis for all subsequent understanding of the role of the land and the unfolding history of redemption. This divine promise was restated to Moses in terms of a land flowing with milk and honey. See Exodus 3, 8, 17, 13, 5, 33, 3, Leviticus 20, 24, Numbers 13, 27. So, a land was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, And this promise is reiterated in the days of Moses. God is going to give this people, the physical descendants of Abraham, a land. And it will be a land flowing with milk and honey. As this significance of this land was revealed to Moses, three striking concepts emerged. First of all, this land belongs to the Lord of the covenant. This land belongs to the Lord of the covenant. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, says the Lord in Leviticus 25.23. So the land belongs to the Lord. This concept that this particular land belonged to the Lord can be understood correctly only if the Lord's claim to the whole earth is recognized. Does the Lord only own a small tract of land? No. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And the people of Israel knew this. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh. It's one of the plagues. Um, Here's what's going to happen. And when it happens, you will know, Pharaoh, that the earth is the Lord's. Not only does he have a special people, and not only will he give them a special land, but all things are his, even you and your earthly kingdom are under His sovereign authority. Behold, I quote now Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, 
Yet the Lord set His heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel, saying, Everything belongs to the Lord, but He has set you apart as peculiar, as as unique, as as special. Uh, And this is how the Lord has worked with Old Covenant Israel. Under the New Covenant, this principle that the Lord possesses the whole of heaven and earth has practical application. Do you see how we're building here? Um, we're, we're building upon these themes. Concerning eating food offered to idols, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.26, For the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. So Paul picks up this theme and applies it to the question of whether or not we can eat food offered to idols. And the patriarch's promise is understood in the New Testament to imply that he is the heir of the cosmos, not merely the land of the Bible. Uh, 4, in Romans 4.13 we read, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Now I've been moving very quickly, but I want you just to hear what Paul says about the promise that was given to Abraham. The promise that was given to Father Abraham. Here is how Paul the Apostle interprets the promise given to Abraham. What was the promise given to Abraham? It was that, well, there were many. He would have a son. He would have many descendants that would come from this son. Kings would come from him. And also, as it pertains to our subject now, a land would be given to him. This, This land, he was told to look, look, this will all be yours. A land would be given to him. But now, how does Paul interpret that promise given to Abraham? I'll read it again, Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the what? world. Heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham understood this, that through his son, he would be heir of the world. And who is the son of Abraham? Christ Jesus, the Lord. Not Isaac. But through Christ, that's the son of Abraham that we're talking about here. Through, through Christ, Abraham and his descendants would come to possess not just a little tiny piece of land, but the world. That is to say, the new heavens and new earth. Do you see how this theme of land is present throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, but it also builds It also develops, it expands. That's the thing you need to see as we think about the land theologically. Romans 4.13 is very important. And then Robertson says, In this way, paradise, Genesis 1 and 2, In this way, paradise will be restored in all its glory. Revelation 21 and 22. Do you get it? In this way, through Abraham and his son, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Christ, paradise will be restored in all its glory. The blessing of the land that humanity first experienced will finally be graciously given back to him. That's a wonderful statement on page 10. The second thing that is to be noticed about God's dealing with the people of Israel in the days of Moses and onward is that all blessings flowing from the land come ultimately from the hand of the Lord. All blessings flowing from the land come ultimately from the hand of the Lord. From an alternative perspective, it may be said that the land is specifically the place where Yahweh abundantly gave material gifts of all kinds to His people. The fact that 
the Lord alone could give blessings in the land was underscored even before Israel entered it. The land would not be like Egypt, watered regularly by the flooding Nile. Instead, in this land, God would show special care by sending the rains in their various seasons. That's a wonderful observation. I, a land flowing with milk and honey, well, it's kind of an arid place with lots of rocks in it. You know, it, it, would, it would be productive and a blessing to the people if God blessed it with, with rains in various seasons. Yet, with all the emphasis on the distinctiveness of this land, the reason for its selection must not be overlooked. Listen carefully to this, please. Why was it selected? So that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Sound familiar? This was preached upon recently. As a narrow land bridge connecting the continents of Africa, Europe, and Asia, this place and no other was rightly situated for the extension of God's covenant blessing to the entire world. It was for this reason that the prophet Ezekiel later declared that God's people were situated at the center of the earth and that Jerusalem was set in the center of the nation. See Ezekiel 38.12 and 5.5. So, the purpose of the land was that the nations would be blessed through it. Do you remember in the preaching that I offered to you a couple of Sundays ago how I said this was even suggested before Abraham when Noah uh, spoke to his three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Do you remember this? Shem was blessed supremely. Uh, Japheth was also blessed, but he would be blessed how? In the tents of Shem. Remember? Shem becomes Abraham. And when God spoke to Abraham, he called him and said, I will bless the nations of the earth through you. From the very beginning, this was the purpose. It wasn't a plan B or C or anything like that. This was the stated purpose for calling Abraham and setting him apart, for setting this people apart, for giving them this land, for establishing uh, the old covenant uh, um, worship. All of these things were, were meant to produce blessing to the nations from uh, the very beginning. Three, this land is uniquely holy. That's the third observation to make. The holiness of the land is inescapably related to the fact that the holy God dwelt there. Why was this land holy? Does this, did this land possess a unique uh, quality about it uh, that was intrinsic to it? It's just a really special place. It's a holy land and always has been, always will be. No, what Robertson is pointing out here is that the land was, was declared to be holy because God's presence was there. God dwelt there in a special way under the Old Covenant. It is not that the land itself possessed some spe special sacredness in and of itself. The holiness of the land is derived from the presence of the Holy God. But once His person has been removed, the land is no longer holy, and so becomes subject to human devastation. Even the ground around a bush in the desert becomes holy when the Lord manifests His presence in that place. You know what He's referring to here, right? When Moses encountered Yahweh in the burning bush that was not consumed. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Why was it holy ground? Not because the ground itself was holy, but because God's presence was manifest there. And so it was with the whole land of Israel. It was set apart as holy because God's presence was manifest right in the center of it, there in the tabernacle and later temple. A very important sub concept here. In a similar way, Israel is charged not to defile the land for, I quote now, Numbers 35-34, for, why, why can't you defile it? For this reason, for I dwell in the midst of my people Israel. So the land was set apart as holy because God's presence was there. Yet the holiness of the Lord so penetrates the land that it may be said that it is 
proact- that it is proactive in maintaining its own sacredness. Because of the pollution of the Canaanites, the land vomited them from its midst, Leviticus 18.25, as the people entered in. In a similar way, Israel must be careful to keep all the Lord's commandments, or the land will vomit them out, Leviticus 18.28 and 20.22. So, under the Old Covenant, the Old Mosaic Covenant, there was this threat that loomed over the people of being vomited out of the land, should they defile and break the covenant. And they were sent into exile for a time. And they were brought back again graciously until the Christ did come. But do you understand why these principles are important? The land is not holy in an intrinsic way, in and of itself. It is holy because it was set apart as holy because the Lord was there, present with His people, whom He had set apart for a purpose, to bless the nations through them, you see. Um, This land, and this is a lengthy quote, but I wanted to read the whole thing. And I think we're actually going to make it today. Uh, The... The land functioned in significant ways by the appointment of God in accordance with the covenant mediated through Abraham and Moses. In idyllic terms, it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. This description of the promised land intentionally reflected the nature of paradise, that is, Eden. Yet, the real condition of the land as experienced by Israel was quite different. Throughout its history, Israel experienced with the land... Their experience with the land had the effect of placing the promise of it in the category of Old Covenant shadow that would have to wait for the arrival of New Covenant realities for its fulfillment. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that the people didn't experience this abundance of blessing always. Um, they, They had to realize, therefore, that these promises of God and the way in which the land was described by God to them must have had greater meaning to it. There there must have been some greater fulfillment yet to come, because they did not always experience this great blessing, given their sin, their breaking of the covenant. In the time of David and Solomon, the full extent of the land was described as stretching from the Tigris to the Euphrates River, to the border of Egypt. In this restored paradise of the kingdom, every man would sit under his own vine and fig tree, 1 Kings 4.25, Micah 4.4, Zechariah 3.10. Yet from the beginning, the actual experience of the people was quite different. From Solomon's day onward, the people experienced oppression rather than paradise, which had the effect of placing this promise firmly within the category of an old covenant shadow that would have to wait for the arrival of the new covenant realities for its fulfillment. The possession of the land under the old covenant was not an end in itself, but fit instead amongst the shadows, types, and prophecies that were characteristic of the Old Covenant in its preparation of redemptive truth. Just as the tabernacle was never intended to be a settled item in the plan of redemption, but to point to Christ's tabernacling amongst His people, and just as the sacrificial system could never atone for sins, but could only foreshadow the offering of the Son of God, so in a similar manner Abraham received the promise of the land, but never experienced the blessing of its full possession." In this way, the patriarch, Abraham, learned to look forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That is Hebrews 11.10. What does this mean? It means that Abraham himself was able to take these promises in and to look at the land and to look through the land to greater realities yet to come. Abraham understood that this was the point from the beginning. This was about a restoration of paradise lost. It wasn't about this land, but through this land God would bring about a restoration of all things, the new heavens and new earth. Let me find my place again. Because of the promise that was set before them, the patriarchs never returned to the land of Ur, since they were longing for a better country, 
a heavenly one, says Hebrews 11.16. As a consequence, even the denial of the realization of the promise to the patriarchs served the purpose of God by forcing them to look beyond their present experience to the future reality. According to one analysis, this is a quote from a man named Walker, the patriarchs were looking forward, not so much to the day when their descendants would inherit the physical land, as to the day when they themselves would inherit the heavenly country which the physical land signified. They saw through the promise of the land, looking beyond it to a deeper spiritual reality. The promise concerning the land, whilst real and valid in its own terms, pointed typologically to something greater. To something greater. I knew I would take up all the time today with this introductory lesson. And I know I say this during every Sunday school class. I do hope to leave time for discussion <laughs> in future ones. I, I, we may have, might have to extend this. Again, I say, I know that this is old news to some of you. Reflect deeply upon these things. Just think of what God has done through Christ Jesus to to earn for us the new heavens and new earth. Our redemption in Christ Jesus is marvelous to consider. Not only has He saved us personally, but He has also secured a place for us. A place for us to dwell securely forever and ever. Isn't that marvelous to consider? It's wonderful. And brothers and sisters, to put the matter very sharply... I think maybe you're beginning to see that, that this question is important for, for a number of reasons. Politically, yes, okay. And in terms of how we are going to interpret current events, okay, fine. But really, this is about reading the Bible correctly. This is about reading the Bible as a Christian and not a non-believing Jew. And I know that's a very sharp way to put it, but, but in fact... Many of the Jews who rejected Jesus when He came, rejected Him as the Messiah, they did so because they were, they were wanting something earthly. They were wanting a restoration of old covenant Israel. They wanted the Romans out of their land. They wanted the temple all to themselves and, and for it to last forever and ever. You understand what I'm saying here? They, they, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah because they didn't read the Old Testament properly. They read the Old Testament as if it were really about that piece of land, that temple, and this ethnic people. They failed to read the Old Testament as if it were pointing forward to the coming Messiah and would find its fulfillment in Him. So this this issue here is pressing us, I think, to read the whole Bible as Christians, as those who acknowledge that Jesus has come and that He is the Messiah and that He has earned something far greater than just a repeat, a restoration of the Old Covenant. No, He came to fulfill that, and to expand that greatly, and all of this will find its consummation in the new heavens and new earth. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that You would give us focus through this study, give us the ability to continue on through it, and help us to reflect upon these truths deeply, O God. I pray that our love for Christ would grow, that our appreciation for the redemption He has worked would increase, O Lord, and that You, O God, would get the glory. We long for the return of Christ. We long for the new heavens and new earth, where all is filled with the glory of God, and no unclean thing enters. O Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until then, make us faithful sojourners on earth, O God. We do pray for this world that is so plagued by sin and filled with violence and corruption. And we do ask that you would have mercy, O Lord. Have mercy upon us here in this land. Have mercy upon those who are living in war-torn places. That you would preserve them, O God, especially that you would preserve your church. 
And help them, O Lord, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, our only hope. In his name we pray. Amen.